Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO and managing partner of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor. I'm a coach, a husband, recently a grandfather. Now, along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've achieved by continuing to elevate in living a fulfilled life by making a positive difference in my world. I'm going to invite you to join me as I delve into the details of the many wins of my guests in achieving their goals, along with, shall we say, the frustrations of the occasional deal gone wrong, because my guests are here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them in business and investing in real estate, from the life they're now able to live to the person they become along the way as they pursued their dreams in having the freedom they've gained by building a sustainable financial future for them and their family. Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Before I introduce my next guest, I want to start by thanking you, the listeners, for your feedback to the show, as well as remind and even encourage you to send any of your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That's CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. And if you're inclined, I'd definitely appreciate it if you were to rate the show and comment on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever platform you use to listen in. And as well, a reminder to follow us on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide the Everyday Millionaire team and I. It is definitely uh, beneficial for us. It's appreciated and we use it. So keep it coming in. Let's get the show started. With the feedback I actually received from listeners, speaking of feedback, today's episode is actually a kickoff to what I'm simply going to call the Everyday Millionaire Rain Member Special Segment. As many of you know, the Real Estate Investment Network is a national community of investors who are taking action in building their financial futures through investing in real estate. As a matter of fact, many RAIN members follow The Everyday Millionaire, and I often have the opportunity to speak with the members about the show. So these special segments will be discussions with RAIN members about their journey to achieving their goals, their financial goals, their lifestyle dreams, their contribution to their families and others, as I like to say, seemingly ordinary people working towards and achieving extraordinary results. So these are people that are inspired to share their stories with us and provide a look into what they've learned on their path as real estate investors. There's just so much to learn from others who have gone before us. And I just want to leverage the knowledge of the RAIN community with listeners to provide some insights for those who care to share their stories and lessons. Okay, today my RAIN member special segment guest is Dominic Mandato. A brief bio as introduction to Dominic is that he's the president and chief executive officer of Invest Plus REIT, or said another way, a real estate investment trust, which is a private real estate investment fund based in Calgary, Alberta. He is both the trust and the administrator and is the sole director of the administrator. He's a real estate investor and entrepreneur who specializes in the acquisition, renovation, and value enhancement of multi-unit residential and commercial buildings. He has successfully acquired, managed, and sold in the neighborhood of $50 million of multi-unit residential and commercial properties in British Columbia, Alberta, Ontario, Quebec, just over the last 18 years. 
Now, Dominic has spent the last 13 years building and managing Invest Plus. After years of putting together joint ventures and limited partnerships, he created a REIT that he felt would serve investors better from a yield, liquidity, and governance standpoint. Invest Plus REIT targets and focuses on properties in Western Canada. Dominic is a devoted father, he's a husband, and he's an active member of the Calgary community. He remains committed to ensuring his family's well-being through security of real estate. And he's been a longtime Rain member. He's been on our stage. He's become a good friend over the years. So without further delay, my guest, Dominic Mandato. Dominic Mandato, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire, my friend. I've been uh, looking forward to this interview and uh, want to say welcome to the show. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks for having me on the show. You know, it's interesting, uh, Dominic, is that uh, I've certainly gotten to know you a little bit over the years as a Rain member and We've had a number of conversations of just business and life in general. You know, you're the CEO and uh, I guess the main guy at Invest Plus. What is Invest Plus all about? Let's start there. Well, Invest Plus really started off as a just a business to buy multifamily and commercial buildings with you know friends and family, and it started back in 2004 when uh, my family and I moved to Calgary. And uh, so right now we're a real estate trust. We're in the business of buying multifamily commercial buildings and allowing investors to share and uh, the opportunities that lay ahead. So now you moved, you said you moved back to Calgary in 2004. Where were you prior to 2004? Well, I was born and raised in Montreal and uh, most of my uh, youth uh, and growing up was in Montreal. I uh, went to university, went to university there. I graduated in mechanical engineering at the University of Concordia. And shortly thereafter, there wasn't a whole lot of work in uh, in mechanical engineering at the time. So I took a job with an automation company, a U.S. company in sales. And it was there where I started to uh, learn a little bit about sales. And the truth is, is, it's funny because you go to school, you know, for four years, you have this idea that, you know, you're going to be stamping drawings and things like that. And here I am uh, making cold calls. And so I, I really struggled with that for a little bit. But because the economy just wasn't uh, wasn't really at the point where I could make decisions on where to go, uh, they offered me an outside sales position in '98. Uh, uh, that took me to the U.S. for about six months in technical and sales training, and then they moved me over to Vancouver. And so I lived in Vancouver for five years to grow the business there. And after five years of living in Vancouver, uh, sat down with my boss and. Uh, you know, do my performance evaluation. And just before I started, uh, he says, listen, Dominic, uh, we're going to terminate your position. And uh, so I said, uh, okay, well, that's good. Um, <laughs> so uh, what do I do now? And he says, let me finish. He says, but we need you in Calgary. And it's funny because, you know, we're of Italian descent. Family is very important to us. And so my wife and I always thought at some point we'd move back to Montreal uh, or at the very least, at the head office of where I used to work, which was in, in Cambridge, Ontario. Never, never thinking that I'd be in Calgary. And so so we moved to Calgary. And then my wife said, you know what? Two years. That's it. We're giving them two years. And that's it. We're moving. We're moving back. And, you know, it didn't take very long for us to realize, you know, we're at the right place at the right time on, on so many levels. I mean, I know we're talking real estate and wealth and all that. But, but even from a you know, a growing community, a growing city. The city was just so vibrant. 
It still is today, but it was uh, it was a, a huge uh, wake up call for me from the standpoint of sort of that can do spirit that Alberta has, and I loved it. Like, we fell in love with it right away. Cool. You know, one of the beauties about Calgary too is that it's uh, you know it's got people from all over the country, and it's rare to find anyone who's born and raised. And that's I think what makes this province great is that uh, everyone makes an effort to get to know each other. Hospitality is great, and everything's good. Cool. Well, I want to go back. You know, the everyday millionaire is really about the journey to creating the wealth and the success that you've created. And I want to go back to Montreal. So do you speak French? Did you did you ever speak French? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a requirement. Yeah. It's, it's the official language in Quebec. So you came out, but you left Montreal, your family guy. So but go back a little bit about growing up. So you're 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 an entrepreneur. You have been for a number of years. Did you come out of the shoot that way? Was there always that entrepreneurial spirit in behind this? Or did you, like so many of us, have that entrepreneurial accident? So if I go back, you know, as a kid growing up in Montreal, siblings, brother, sister? Yeah, I have a younger brother and younger sister. And what what about your parents? Were they just working for somebody? Were they entrepreneurial themselves? No, they weren't. And uh, my dad was a, a suit presser. So, um, you know, he worked for a company called Aquascutum. I don't know if they're still around, but he would press suits for a living. And right. uh, on a, you know, on a, like Moore's clothing store, for instance, right? Yeah. They have, uh, you know, they get suits. And so he was the presser. And so, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. So you guys, I mean, obviously humble beginnings and living in Montreal, you came out of university and you had your degree in mechanical engineering. Then you kind of took a job, took a position, and started to move on. Now, where did the whole idea of being self-employed and going out on your own in the world of real estate, where did that even start to come up for you? Well, I think, you know, you, you kind of touched on it a little bit. It was a little bit by accident, um, you know, because growing up uh, and going to school, if you look at the, the, the history of going to school, I thought, you know, I'd be somewhere in the medical world, if you, if you can believe that. Wow. <laughs> uh, when I think about it today, right, it's, uh, it's so funny. I remember, um, you know, interviewing at Vanier College in Montreal to become a respiratory and anesthesia technologist. And, um, you know, it's funny because I, I truly believe uh, God has a plan. And uh, the plan was not for me to be a respiratory and anesthesia technologist, let me tell you, because... I failed the interview. I never even got past the interview. So, and I remember for a long time, you know, um, we'd have walks with my parents and, you know, we had friends that weren't too far from our neighborhood and we'd have family walks. And I remember, it's weird that you remember things when you're a kid. And my mom saying, you know, Dominic, I think you'd be good in business. And I said, you know, I hate business. I don't like, I'm not interested in business at all. And, uh, and I remember even in high school, I took economics 101 and I, just was not interested. And so, so it's funny how that never really appealed to me until, um, until really I started uh, my career. When I started working for the, uh, the U.S. company and really moved out to Vancouver, I think what drove me there said, okay, this is, this is going to be my life now. I have to grow this business. And in the process of, of sales, and, and you know, this is, this is the part that I think really turned it around for me is when I went to the U.S. for sales training, I did not believe that I could sell. Of course, you know, salesmen and sales work, you know, it has that connotation of a sort of used car sales guy. And I just didn't want that. I wasn't interested in any of that. 
And yet, when I went there within about two weeks or three weeks of the training, I said, this is exactly what I want to do. And so when I moved to Vancouver, and I had the territory of Kamloops and the interior, and so I'd call on the pulp mills and the sawmills and all that. What I was doing is I was also talking to a lot of business owners. And it really intrigued me to see these businesses grow and the decisions that were being made on what they're buying, how they're buying, how they're growing, and so on and so forth. And so there's this thing that they say that when a man gets to about the age of 24, something in their mind just clicks. And for me, it was right around 24, 25. And, and I realized, you know, I, I think I want to go into business. I don't know what it is, but at some point I'm going to go on my own. And it just stuck in my head. And so for the course of the next you know, three, four years, I, I worked for the company and uh, really was after about a year being in BC where I started to learn about real estate. Now, so you started, what year did you start investing in real estate? You must have had some capital tied up or available to you somewhere along the line. <laughs> That's another funny story. Uh, no, I didn't have any capital. So we lived in Vancouver. So we moved, we get this, we moved to Vancouver in 98. And, um, and, and my wife and I live in a, in a basement suite on Curtis and Duffy. It was a great spot. Anyways, uh, so we're looking at uh, finding a place uh, in the Burnaby area. And we finally find a home. We buy the home. And it requires us to put, uh, uh, to put 10% down because we were using RSP money. We're first-time home buyers. And uh, so my wife and I like, did our best to save up some money. I'd save about $30,000. And it went into this house. And this house was a $300,000 home in, in Burnaby. Now, this house at $300,000 would have bought us like a mansion in Montreal. So I was so embarrassed about the amount of money I was spending on this house that was, was a fixer-upper. It still needed money to be spent on. And I was, I was uh, even a bit ashamed of telling my dad that I spent that much on the, on, on the house. But around this time, so this, this house was closing right around June of 1999. And about a month before that, uh, I see there's this article in the paper on how to buy real estate. And it was uh, Raymond Aaron who, who put it on. I, I didn't know Raymond Aaron at the time. So I said, hey, you know, what do I got to lose? So I go downtown. I think it was at the Pan Pacific. And I sit in this uh, you know, weekend. It was a Friday night. And it was just a Friday night. And during that weekend, you know, it starts talking about real estate and um, you know, what real estate has done for people. And the one thing that really, you know, drove it home to me was that 80% of all millionaires made their money in real estate. And, you know, it wasn't that he said that 80% of millionaires made their money in real estate. It was the fact that I realized I know a lot of people who are wealthy. And yeah, in fact, they are all tied to real estate somehow. And what, what upset me was, you know, I've got like my uncle Don, my uncle Louie, a, a whole bunch of people and family members who have, you know, were very wealthy. And you see this growing up and you're going, yeah, they have money. You know, you could just tell, you know, like, you know, Uncle Dom, he's got money. He's got a lot of land. He's got this, got that. But you never really connect the dots until, boom, this one, you know, this moment comes up and you go, wait a second. I know he's made a lot of money in real estate. Why hasn't anyone asked them how they made their money, right? And, they, and it, you know, I was a little bit upset over it because I thought to myself, in our culture, it's almost disrespectful to ask how you made your money because, you know, it's insinuating you want some of their money or whatever the case may be. But in reality, uh, what I found out later in asking them how they made their money, they were open doors, right? It's like, this is, this is how I did it and on and on. And, and you start to see the patterns 
And those patterns and you start to follow over the years is saying, well, if it worked for him, it's going to work for me. And, and, and in fact, that's what, that's what happened. So, but we bought that house in June of 1999. By the end of that weekend, I bought my first piece of real estate and it wasn't, I hadn't saved up any money. Uh, in fact, the program that they had is they were selling condos and they said, look, let's use a, uh, you can, you can buy a real estate with a credit line. Of course, I don't know what the heck a credit line was at the time. And they, they looked at our income. They said, yeah, you qualify. And so we went and got an RBC credit line, an unsecured credit line to buy a condo in Edmonton. Now, I was super pumped. My wife, on the other hand, like devastated, just absolutely like scared out of her mind, you know, crying. And her biggest concern was for me to tell anyone that I just bought a piece of property in Edmonton when we had just bought this place in Vancouver. Her biggest fear was, you know, please don't tell anybody because, you know, if, if, if we go bankrupt, you know, what are they going to say? And on, on, on. And I said, okay, well, look, you support me on this. I'll support you on that. And so we both agreed that, you know, I wouldn't share that, that I bought that property. Now, being in sales, of course, you know, there have been years over the next couple of years where we've done very well. And every time there was a big check that came in, you know, my colleagues would ask me and say, hey, what are you going to do that money? Are you going to go on holidays or whatever? No, I'm, I'm going to go buy another piece of real estate. And so we did that and went and I bought a place in Maple Ridge. Then we bought a place in, in St. Catharines, Ontario, in, in, in Montreal as well, so on and so forth. And so you know, we accumulated about a half a dozen properties that way. And then we moved to Calgary. So let me take you back a little bit to something you said, because I see this a lot with RAIN members and, and just individuals that I coach from time to time in either in real estate or in business. And that is, you know, you had your significant other, you had Rosa, your wife, who is really freaked out, afraid uh, for whatever her fears might be built around. Did she have a story around real estate or, you know, a bad experience maybe in her past with her family? She saw something. And then, because what I see often is, how do you create an environment for success in business, real estate or other, when the two, you know, your significant other isn't aligned with what you're doing? And and so obviously she trusted you in spite of her fears. And did you find that as she gained more confidence, you were able to just keep going? Or was that always a bit of an uphill battle for, for you two? No, I, you know what? It's... it's uh... I think she she trusted me reluctantly. Now, where does that come from? I think it came from upbringing a little bit. I don't think they had bad experiences within her family, but you know her her parents also very hardworking, uh, you know, immigrants from Italy. Dad was a barber, mom was a, a seamstress, and so just you know was led to believe that the way you earn your money is uh, through working, hard work, and hard work. That's it, just hard work. And, you know, there's no fault in, in thinking that but there were other ways. And so the truth is, is that the reason why I think I'm successful, and I think I know I'm successful and we are where we are is because of my wife, because uh, while she was reluctant, I promised her that I wouldn't tell anyone. But then you know what happens is then you start getting success and you say, oh yeah, I just bought a piece of property. Oh yeah. And I and also own this. And then, you know, family starts to, starts to, you know, question going, wait a second, how much have you bought in the last three or four years, right? So I think what happened was in the first couple of years, sure, you know, things were a little bit tight. There's still a little bit of uncertainty, but I did my best to convert. Here's where I think also helped. That Friday night, when I sat in that seminar, 
I knew that if I ever wanted my wife to support me, I had to have her come to the seminar because I was so moved by it. And, and not, not because of what they said, but because I, at that point I had realized this is exactly what I'm going to do. This is for me. It's real estate. It's being an investor. This is for me. You know, it's like when you came up uh, you know, at the, the early days of rain as well, I'd always come back from, from the events and still today to this point, I come back and I'd be like super pumped. Right. And, and I realized that if, if I come back with that feeling of, oh, you know, I'm so excited. I want to go out that the only way I'm going to convince my wife is that if she comes and hears that message as well. And so while she was reluctant and nervous, secretly, I think she, she believed in it as well. She was just nervous. And then over time, I think seeing the success and seeing that things were still working, we're still paying our bills. I think that gave her the confidence. So that sounds like a definite fork in the road for you when you went to that particular seminar and you you heard Raymond Aaron speaking about real estate, giving you a context and seeing the possibilities for it. Was that what it was for you as you looked at this fork in the road and you went, I'm going to take this one because this makes sense to me? It did. I mean, it didn't, it wasn't like I decided at that point, hey, I'm going to be invest plus or, you know, we're going to transact $50 million worth of assets. It, 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 nothing like that. It's, it was, you know what, this is how I'm going to create a NASDAQ for our family. That was, that was the only thing. I, like, I mean, it wasn't even that I was going to create a company. I was going to build a company. It really only started off as, you know what, I'm just going to buy some houses and create some wealth for my family. So that was, yeah, that was one of the forks. That's for sure. There was another fork that took, was going to take me the other way though. Well, okay, but let's talk about the, you know, because we hit those forks in the road. You know, we're both old enough, um, me quite a lot older than you, but at the end of the day, we can look and reflect back and see those forks in the road that actually were, they changed our lives in terms of how things move forward. For you, was that one of them or what were the other fork? What was the other fork in the road that you could have seen? Like in, when you look in hindsight, where, what other direction could you have gone, do you think? Well, during those years, it's funny because, um, you know, so we buy this property and we buy a property in Maple Ridge and we had about three properties and uh, this property in Maple Ridge was, it was a freaking disaster. I mean, I didn't know anything about property management and I had drug trafficking going on. I had terrible tenants skipping on rents. It was one of those first properties that I bought and it got to the point where I wanted to sell and it got to the point where I became a motivated vendor. I put in money, I renovate this property, I fill it up, you know, and I rent it for a couple of months and then the problem started. You know, there were three suites, you know, basement and an upper floor. And the owner previous to me had converted the third bedroom on the main floor into a bachelor. And so on paper, this thing cash flowed really well. The trouble was I couldn't get all three filled up at the same time. Every time I filled one up, one would leave and so on and so forth. And then there was there was just too much traffic. And what happened was at some point I decided I'm going to put up on the market and sell it. And I had this older gentleman, his name was Mr. O'Hare. I remember from like it was yesterday. Mr. O'Hare looked at the building. I'm having trouble selling it. Nobody wants to buy it. I wanted to sell it for, it was like $170,000. You know, all I wanted was like maybe a $10,000 profit on it. He seems to be the only interested party. And so I sat down with him. He makes me an offer for 150000 Now, 150000 would have got me just my money back. 
And I just wasn't prepared to sell it for no profit. So I said, no, you know what? I'm, I'm not really interested at this point. So we part our ways. A month later, the problem still exists. I said, you know what? I told my wife, I said, honey, I'm going to, I'm going to sell it. I don't care. I just want my money back. And that's it. So meet with Mr. O'Hare again. I meet at his place, we sat down. I said, look, here's a situation. I'm ready to accept your offer if that offer is still there. And he says, well, since we last talked, I've deployed my money elsewhere and all that. He says, really, right now, my, my offer right now is $140,000. You know, I can tell you, man, I, my heart just sank. I was so upset. And to this day, I think about that time and go, man, I would do the exact same thing. I mean, he, he didn't deploy his money. He just saw that I was so desperately selling this property. And so I left. I did not accept it. I left. And I, uh, you know, went, went back home and my wife, like Rosa for the longest time says, don't sell it. Don't sell it for a loss. Don't even sell it for no profit. You could keep this, you can do it. And she encouraged me the whole way. And I, you know, that's the part that is still to this day. I never understood it. Maybe she saw something in me that I didn't see. The part that was probably the most, you know, we want to talk about a fork in the road. I, I can't remember the streets, but I was remember at a stoplight on my way to the Maple Ridge property. And thinking to myself, you know, the part that disappoints me the most is that if I sell this property, my dreams of investing in real estate are over. And, and yet my wife had all of this, you know, she, she, she had all this faith that, that you know, things were going to turn around. I leave Mr. O'Hare's house. And for about another month, I don't hear from him. Um, I'm doing my best to manage this property because my wife still wants me to, you know, to keep it. And, and then I get a call from him. Then he says, hey, just call in to see, you know, if you're still interested in selling. And I said, I am, but not at that price. And he says, you know, Dominic, you know what I would do? He says, if I had that property, I would get rid of that bachelor suite. And I would just have two tenants. And at that point, it made me realize going, that's exactly my problem. Is I've been looking at it wrong. You know, the the whole time I've been looking at it is that, you know, I was, I was looking from a cash flow standpoint. What I didn't realize was the amount of problems I was having with having a third suite in this house that was made really for one family. And so within days, I went back, tore down the, the bachelor, opened up the door, you know, finished renovating it. Within, within a month, I rented to an older couple. Then I rent downstairs to a, a younger couple. And for one year, no problems, no issues at all. It could have gone the other way. And, and uh, we later sold it about two or three years later, made $50,000 on it, and the rest is history. Sorry, a little bit long-winded, but yeah. Well, that's, yeah, but there's a lot of lessons in that particular story. And, you know, just in the per- perseverance and the resilience and the second guessing, you know, as I talk to many leaders and individuals, whether they're in real estate or not, that take on these challenges. And, you know, in your case, you had the blessing of, Mr. O'Hare, who came and gave you a different perspective, but you also recognized and looked at that perspective and then took action on it. And so kudos to you for doing that. And once again, those are those forks in the road where if it would have gone the other way, you might have gotten right out of real estate because you considered it such a big failure or that's what it sounds like. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and interesting, of course, is the more people I talk to on the show and the podcast is just how much impact and the significance of a wife or a husband that are being a contribution to the journey and 
supporting the other in whatever endeavor they're taking on. And so Rosa showed up that way for you at a time when you really needed it and kept you going. So that shows up all the time, right? Yeah, she's she's a huge, huge reason why we're we're I am doing what I'm doing. You asked about my parents, my dad at the age of 46, and, and maybe this is where the entrepreneurial spirit comes from. At the age of 46, my dad always, always wanted to go in business for himself. And he buys this little distribution business. It was actually candies and, and food for little convenience stores. And it was a small little business. He bought the, the truck, he bought the business, he bought the route, everything. For the next year or two, he kept hearing my mom tell him how he was going to fail. And my mom did not support his business. His business goals did not support him at all. And she admits it today. She, it was a mistake on her part. But she does, She, you know, looking back, because I remember going on the routes with him, and it got to the point where he did get sick over it. It was just too much pressure. And and I can't imagine, I, you know, I think back, I, I cannot imagine having to go through what I went through in like even just that particular property. And you go through this every once in a while in your business and not having the support, you know. And so so for him, where he's trying to grow a business and you're having the stress of having to provide for your family and your partner or your spouse is not supporting you. I mean, it was it was debilitating. And so the sadness about the whole thing is by year three, his business actually started to take off. But he was uh, it was too far gone. He got depressed, unfortunately. Uh, fortunately, he came right back with a little bit of uh, you know, therapy and stuff like that. He came back, but he had to sell the business. And so to me, uh, if you don't have somebody supporting you and, and you feel it in your bones that this is what I need to do, you got to make sure you got somebody there to support you. Otherwise, it's it's an uphill battle. Yeah. I want to take us, you know, in a little bit different direction in the conversation. Now, you and Rosa have five children, five boys, I believe. That's right. We've uh, joked about you having a hockey line, you know, being Canadian. That's awesome. But, I've got a great picture of all five. Oh, really? In their hockey gear. Oh, in, in their picture, hockey yeah. gear. So you're yeah, running yeah. around, you're being uh, you're being mom and dad, running kids all over the place, running a business and running a family. What do you bring forward in, in terms of how you even raise your children, given what you think about business and what you're doing? Is there a philosophy that you and Rosa have around the boys? Because what's the age What's the age now? Because you've got a couple of them that are certainly getting older now, not like growing up older, but they're mature, yeah. they're maturing. Yeah. Yeah, we've got our, our oldest is 17 and our youngest is six. They're about two or three years in, in, in between. Right. So in in the world of business and raising children, and do you, do you have a different approach now with the kids in terms of how you communicate with them about what you do and about business and education? And well, how, do you, how does that work? Cause you, and, you got, and you're a busy guy with five kids, but that's a slightly, we'll go into that conversation in a moment. But do you, do you guys have a philosophy around business and the way you bring your kids up? Yeah, absolutely. You know, from my standpoint, when I first started this business, for a long time, I thought to myself, I'm doing this for my kids. I'm doing this for my kids. And it wasn't until we bought a building in Calgary, and it was a some mid-rise, about 10-story building in downtown Calgary. And I was so happy that we bought that building that I took all of my kids at the top of the roof, right? And I just showed them, because I get pretty excited about stuff like that, thinking, you know, they, they, they get excited. And they did, especially the little ones. Right. But on the way back home, my oldest son told me, he says, you know, Dad, he says, I don't know uh, that I want to buy buildings. 
And I said, uh, I said, that's okay. You, you don't have to. Right. And I said, uh, I'm doing this, but you know, I'm doing this for, for, for the family. But in the end, I, I never had planned to push this onto my family. I mean, if it becomes a business to the point where they would work with me, I think it would be a lot of fun. I would absolutely enjoy it. But to this day, I will never force them to work with me or, or in our business. Now, I will, especially around the dinner table, bring up topics about investments, topics about politics, for instance. Politics is big in our, in our family. And I, I'm so intrigued by the fact that our kids really love to talk about it, especially my second son. Uh, you know, when you talk about the federal uh, election or the provincial election, how is that going to affect us? How does that affect us as a business and all that? So, you know, I kind of took some lessons also from my parents in that conversation around our table wasn't ever really about business. It never was about anything about business. In fact, we'd rarely talk about money. You know, that's one of the things I wished I had because I didn't even know what a mortgage was when I first started in real estate. And so, uh, so, so today, you know, I'm using the opportunity to not drill it in their heads. I'm not that guy, but at least to let them know that whatever decisions you're going to make with money today is going to affect you tomorrow. Or you guys like, you like your iPhones, you know, think about that company and where the growth is going to be. You know, what do you think is going to make that company grow? Or, you know, they spend a lot of times gaming and all that, right? And say, look, think about how that makes you feel and want to buy more of that. That's what a business is looking for. It's little things like that, just little lessons that I sure. usually kind of throw in there. And uh, hopefully it sticks. So, you know, it's interesting as I've gotten to know you over the years, there's, you know, certainly there's a reputation that you have that's from my perspective, is pretty impeccable. You know, how you show up, how you occur for other people is, you know, you've got a great energy about you. You're always respectful. And that's a, just a great reputation to have, of course. And that's why I'm happy to have you on the show. You've achieved a lot of things. You're well known within the rain community and with others in the investment community. The observation I have as I listen to your story is you had some sales background, but I also know you as you know, as, as I'm listening to you tell the story about Mr. O'Hare, I was I'm going, ah, maybe that's the that was the trigger for Dominic to actually uh, start to look at the negotiation tactics that you've become a little bit known for. And I don't want to use the word tactics, but you've got an expertise around negotiation. You've you know, shared from our stage uh, on some negotiating tips and how to do that. You and Don have had some fun on the stage riffing off a. Uh, kind of a scenario and doing some role playing on stage on a negotiation on a building, which was really cool. Was there some additional education that you received around negotiation or was it just really what you did because you got good at it because you did a lot of it? How was that for you? You know, you become the person from when you start as a child, right? And so I think a lot of that came into play or at least started to be embedded in me uh, through my parents. One of the good things about when you grow up in a family where you don't have a lot, but you just have enough, you try to get the best bargains, the best deals, the, you know, you try to negotiate everything that you, that you buy. You know, as a child, my mom would take me to a street called St. Hubert in Montreal. And St. Hubert is about two blocks on this street that is nothing but shoe stores and fashion stores, stuff like that. So I would dread the summer because... It's wedding season. So, you know, my mom would have to buy a pair of shoes. And so, so okay, Dominic, we're going to St. Hubert. Oh, my God, because I knew it was in store. She would take me there and my brother, drag us along, 
and go to every single shoe store on those two blocks. And there's got to be like, you know, as a kid, everything feels a lot bigger. It was probably only three or four stores, but to me, it felt like 20 stores. And every flipping store, right, you did look at the price and then, you know, talk about, you know, was this the best deal? And then she would go up and down. And then by the end, this is about after three hours of doing this, she would then choose the, the, the shoes and bargain with the salesperson, right? And so to me, it, it just became a way of life. I'll negotiate a superstore, man, if I have to. Right? I don't care where it is. Everything is up for negotiation and because that's that's what I was taught. And so uh, if you can get over the, oh, my God, what are they going to think? Yeah, the world is yours, right? Well, you've actually gained quite a, an expertise around it. Obviously, you do a good job of it in terms of the real estate deals that you're putting together and bringing to the table for your investors. It's interesting that there's just a way of being that's required to be good at negotiating. And so the observation of you is you're very thoughtful about the path you take somebody down in a negotiation. It's like Mr. O'Hare. Once again, I go back to that story, which was, yeah, no, sorry, my money's deployed somewhere else. And, you know, I've only got $140,000 on the table. That, to me, sounds like a Dominic move today. Yeah, it is. You're right. And 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 look, uh, you know, you touched a little bit about respect. Respect has been drilled in my head, like since a child. My my dad was huge, huge on respect. He still is today, and it's to the point where I'm becoming my dad because you know I'm instilling it in my kids. And no matter no matter what I'm going to negotiate, I'm not going to be disrespectful. You know, one of the things about negotiation is that if you can see it. If you can have them see it through your eyes as to why you believe the value of whatever it is that you're buying is worth what you're saying, you've got it. And that's how you have to approach it. You know, just like when, you know, people say, you know, imagine yourself in their shoes. Well, now you have to figure out a way to have them see it how you see it in your own shoes. And so if you're able to do that, and really it's a craft. Yeah, there's a little bit of what you're talking about, a little bit of soft skills and the selling side of it as well. But then there's just asking yourself a number of questions and role-playing in your mind on how things are going to be perceived and having the answers to that. And so oftentimes, you know, I, I find myself on the other side of the table where the deal is not quite what I want, but, you know, I still, I'm still happy with the deal uh, because I made a decision that, you know, that's as far as I'd go. But, and then there's times where you, you have to walk away and, and, I, and I'm okay with that too. You know, it's interesting because I know you're good at negotiating and I know that you're good at teaching it. This is, a, a, I think, a great, it's a valuable conversation for the listeners in it. And my experience of hearing you and knowing you a little bit is that I don't get, and, and please, you know, just be straight with us on this conversation. I don't get that you're approaching a negotiation from how can I grind this guy or how can I get even the best deal, it seems that you approach a negotiation from how can we both walk away from this table feeling awesome about what we've just agreed to. And that's my sense of it. Is is there an actual mindset that you have that you're walking into that negotiation with? Is it a mindset? In the end, I also have to see it from their perspective as well. If you only see it from your own perspective, then you're always, you're always going to come away with it like you won and they lost. So in the end, a really good example is just recently I had to deal with an issue with a, a tenant who took us to court and she spoke French 
and they had asked her to bring a, a, a translator and, and she didn't because all she spoke was French and she spoke a little bit of English. And this was going on for quite some time. So they were going to postpone this trial to another, you know, another three, four months and whatever, on and on and on. And I asked, uh, I asked the judge, I said, look, I speak French. I know I'm on the other side of the table here, but you know, if you give me a few minutes with her and I can speak to her and let her know, you know, my position, maybe I can get a settlement on this. And that's exactly what I did. So I spoke to her in French. She really didn't understand what her rights were. I did my best to come across it from an unbiased standpoint and say, look, here's what the judge is saying. Here's the risk to you. Here's the risk to me. Here's what the offer is at the table. We can both walk away from this and move on and carry on with our lives, or we got to come back. And in the end, you know, all I did was was not getting across to her was what her risks were. And she didn't quite understand that. And a lot of times when you're negotiating, whether you speak the language or not, is outlining what's in it for them as much as what's in it for you. And even though you may look like you're getting the better part of the deal, you always got to reinforce that they too are getting a deal as well. So you both feel good about it, right? Okay, so I get that. That's and that's how I see and that's how I hear you when you're talking about negotiating. And once again, because you've been on our stage. So just off on another bit of a tangent, because when I look at what drives the success or what supports the success. Now, when I look at success, I mean we we call this show the everyday millionaire, and there's a certainly the financial part of what we're talking about achieving, but I often am looking at and listening to my guests through a lens called who are you being how do you show up and because in this case i know you and have had several conversations with you over the years my impression of you and and how once again your reputation is is that you're a strong leader your ability negotiating aside how you show up is around your ability to lead as a business owner as somebody who has is driving success is not driven by money but wants to earn money was the leadership that you've gained did you did you do that on a post secondary education did you learn by the school of hard knocks did you have a mentor along the way where did you gain the leadership skills that you have i don't know it's funny because i wasn't the guy who always got promoted in fact a lot of times where i thought i should have been promoted and never did <laughs> and and so it's funny. I've had mentors along the way. One of the things my dad told me as a kid is, you know, always be, you know, always hang around with people who are smarter than you. And uh, and it's funny because as a kid, I took that as an insult. Saying, Why do I want to be the stupid one? Right. I want to be the smartest one in my group. Right. And but but, you know, in taking that 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 approach, it's helped me quite a bit because I later on learned in life, if you want to be a better leader, a better business owner, or anything. You, you want to align yourselves with the giants of the business, right? And so for me, I think it's it's been a, a combination of the people whom I've met over the years and emulate a lot of the, the best practices that they use. You know, I've had great parents, loving parents, and that was a, a big part of that. I've had uh, I have a great wife. I've got, uh, uh, you know, I have Rain, I have you, I had Dawn. Uh, you know, Raymond Aaron, it was a phenomenal salesman, uh, you know, uh, uh, and all of those things. And, and I don't know, I think a bit for it, you know, like sometimes I kind of ask myself those questions myself. I, I don't know. I have this gift in picking up 
things that that make people great. And when I used to work for the U.S. company, there was this guy that they hired for a division of the company. And he came from the outside, right? So he wasn't the guy that they promoted within the company. This guy came from the outside. And he had this ability to attract, like he would come into the office, everybody just kind of surround him because they loved him. His name was Dean. Just loved him. Like it drew me in as well. But at the same time, I'm asking the question, what is it that's drawing people to this guy? What makes this guy successful? Why are people so interested in this person? And later on, start to realize, okay, this I see what he's doing. It's this, it's this, it's this. And then I would just emulate the exact same thing. And then it worked, right? So it's, it's no different than, I'll give you a great example. If I walk into the office and I say, good morning, everybody. What a great day it is today. Who's, who's pumped? And as opposed to saying, hey, good morning, guys. Uh, yeah, uh, go straight to my office and just close the door, right? There's, there's a massive difference between those two. And it's the influence that you have over the people around you. And so you have to bring that energy. It's just like when you bring the energy to rain. It's like when Don brings the energy to rain. You know, if, if you don't do that, you get a mediocre or, you know, a less par performance, right? So to answer your question, I, I think a lot of it had to do with the people who were in my circle and my ability to recognize that, hey, there's a leader. I want to learn what makes him great and why he's a great leader. I think that's where it comes from. But it's a, obviously it's a, I wouldn't say obviously, but I believe that I'm hearing from you is that it's a pretty conscious thing. You're being reflective. You are actually assessing your own performance as a leader and you're putting in corrections as you go. It's intentional. It's not like. It, it's it's very intentional. Absolutely. Yeah, you think about it. I don't, sometimes it's I'm kind of Jekyll and Hyde because sometimes you think about how, you know what, uh, there's no reason why I shouldn't be the president of the company I used to work for. And then there are other times you're going, I'm a loser. <laughs> sure. There's no way I could be, you know, and, and I think you kind of go back and forth and always self-assessing yourself. There's good things about that because you're always improving. But, you know, at times it's also hard on yourself, too. Right. So you just got to make sure that, you know, that the people around you are also not affected by those moments where you're second guessing yourself or you might have a, a second thought about it. Right. And so. I think like most business owners, you're probably your own worst critic. Would that be the case for you? Oh, shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. And so is your team, have you surrounded yourself with a team of people that are pretty straight with you and, you know, call you out when you're full of shit and let you know that doesn't make sense or, you know, snap out of it? Or what, how is that with you and the team that you have? Uh, yeah, I, I would say so. Um, but, you know, the problem is, is when you're when you're the boss. I try to create an environment around me where people will say, look, this is not working. And I encourage that. Uh, you know, it's, it's important not to have a huge ego. You know, if we go to a, a conference or, or like today, I'm, I'm in Comox and, and meeting a bunch of advisors. I want to be meeting with the advisors. I'm not that guy who has to sit with all the big bosses all the time. I'd like to hear it from the ground, from the ground level. So for me, it's do I have people who, who call me out? Sometimes, sometimes though, you know, when you're, when you're, you're a little bit lonely at the top and you're thinking that you're making all the right decisions, sometimes you got to learn the, the hard way as well, right? Is there a practice that you have on a day-to-day -day basis? You know, you've got, of course, you and Rosa are running a busy household with five boys, no doubt about it. You've got a very busy business. You're doing what you're doing in that. Do you have a practice that, you know, supports all of those things? You know, when you're 
into the world of leadership, when you're into the world of running your business? How do you look after yourself? How do you look after your family? Is that taking you some time to kind of dial in those? Are you good at it yet, do you think? Or how does your day start? That's probably my biggest self-critique is, you know, am I, am I being the best parent that I can be? And not because I'm not there for for the children. You know, there's there's a number of things. So let me back up a little bit. You know, the one thing that I noticed in sort of starting my career in real estate, I started noticing, or just, just in general, looking at successful people, like uber successful people, I started noticing a trend a long, long time ago. Going, okay, you know what I can see is that this person is very successful, but there's a price to everything, right? And no matter how much success you can have, there's a price to pay. The price you pay is either on the business side or it's on the personal side. It's very rare you will find the success, like uber success at both levels. And I'm talking like I'm talking like Bono from U2, right? Here's a guy who's uber successful, very well known, a famous person, been married to his wife for God knows how many years, right? He's got a family and you never hear him in the news. Like it's rare you hear that, right? Usually what you hear is, you know, uber success and then troubles at home or anything like that. So I recognized that a long time ago and I made a commitment to myself that I'll make sure that I'll, I'll, you know, I allocate the time or spend the time that I believe I should spend with my children or I'll just consciously spend the time with my kids. And even when it comes to that decision of whether, you know, I spend that time at the office or with my children, I'll spend it with my children. I know there's been times like that. I know I could be way more successful if I didn't spend more time with my kids, but I'm not willing to pay that price. You know, that time will come, even if it does, it will come, you know, when the kids are out. But right now my kids need me. And so, so some of the practice that we do, um, you know, it's, to me, it's, it's so critical that we eat together. Like that's one of the things that, you know, as an Italian family, that's where you hear about everybody, how everyone's doing. You hear about the jokes, you hear about the arguments, you hear about who's getting teased. The dinner table is the core of the family, right? And so, but of course, with hockey and with activities with children, it sometimes gets in the way. So we don't get to do that, but we do consciously make an effort to wait around a table and, you know, just little things that we learn is that nobody starts eating until mom sits at the table and when everybody's around a table. So little things like that. And then, okay, now let's let's say grace, let's eat and and let's, let's start the conversation. Going back to the self-critiquing, I'm wealthy because of my children. I'm wealthy because of my family. I'm wealthy because of having healthy kids. You know, what I struggle with a lot is because I have so many children, I'm always concerned that I'm not spending enough time with each one on an individual basis. I'm sometimes envious of the million dollar family, the, the, the two kids, the, the amount of attention that they must get, right? Versus for my kids, right? And I know there are times where they want to spend some time with me and I'm just exhausted, right? And so I, I you know, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. And I, and I struggle with that. So, you know, like our oldest son, he's 17. He's uh, an incredible athlete. He's playing football. It's his third year playing football and he's got, I don't know how many universities looking at him uh, as a possible uh, for a possible scholarship, and and never would I thought that would have happened. I mean, I'm so proud of him, of of what he's accomplishing. But I also know that at times he does not ask for help because he thinks we're busy, 
right? Because we're always running around. And so that's the part that I struggle with a lot. It's interesting, on a recent interview I saw with a lady who was divorced, abusive relationship, got kicked out of the house, had to raise her three children on her own. And years later, when the kids grew up, I mean, she really struggled, you know, basement suite, you know, one bedroom. And when she reflected with her children on them, with them on their growing up, they remember the times that they spent together and the fun that they had doing what they did in the environment that they were in. And they didn't reflect on it and go, it was a tough upbringing. It was always about how mom was being and how much fun they were having playing the games that they played. And it had nothing to do with money or or actually going to Disneyland or any of those things. It was really just about the home environment and the fun they had. So, you know, I, I talk to parents often that feel guilty and and I don't, I don't hear that you're feeling guilty. I hear that you're wishing that you could spend more time with the kids. And I think that's normal. I, you know, my daughter's 32 years old and she lives in Edmonton. And of course, now I'm a grandfather. I wish I was with her all the time. And of course, I'm not. So when I go back to the original part of the conversation was, I think that you spending time with your kids really also looks after you. And that's a big part of what you need to look after yourself. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, absolutely, and 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 that's that to me is key. You know, family comes first. What do you do besides that, though, Dominic? You're a healthy guy. You're are you pretty active? Do you what, what do you do to look after yourself on your alone time? Are you going to the gym on a regular basis? Do you start your day pretty early? What does that look like? Are you as active as you want to be, or how are you setting your life up in that regard? Um, you know what? I, I, I am pretty active. Um, you know, usually my day starts off uh, at 6 a.m. I've got a little gym downstairs in the, the basement and I'll usually work out there. So that way I know I, I have the time to put in a full workout. And so, you know, that's one of those selfish, but also, you know, considerate things that I do. Because if I'm, if I'm, I am working out, I do feel better. You know, I could still, I still run with the kids still uh you know play play sports and all that so I, I play a little bit of hockey too during the winter season a little bit of golf but the truth is you know i play golf but i just play for the social aspect of it i'm really not crazy about the sport uh because i'm probably because i'm a hacker but but other than that you know I'll, I'll i'll do that but usually my day starts off with working out looking after the kids before they go to school you know i'll, I'll usually read a quick passage and then in the Bible and then, you know, the quick prayer and, uh, and then head off to work. That's sort of the typical day for me. For me, that's what grounds me. I don't like talking about how I'm faithful and, you know, I'm a, I'm a Catholic and all that because I don't know, for me, to some degree, we're all hypocrites and I'll start with myself, but you know, I, I do what I can to keep me centered into what is important and that's and that's what keeps me centered. And and uh, you know we'll we'll try to go to church on Sundays, right? And try to instill that in the children, uh, even from a standpoint of faith and and learning about uh, you know Jesus Christ and all that. And so, sorry, I just kind of went there, but but that's my daily routine, and uh, and that's important to me. You know, you seem like today I know you're a really confident guy. You know, you're decisive, even though you might feel indecisive. And you show up as quite confident. Has that always been the case for you? Uh, no, no, not at all. Especially when I was younger, I was not confident at all. Although, you know, it's it goes it goes so many ways. I I, I can't even explain it. I think, you know, there are times where 
uh, when it comes to business decisions, it's always with confidence. But there are times where, you know, when it's really big decisions, where I'll, I'll have to consult and, and, and I'll, you know, and I will make a decision because I have enough information to make that decision. Sometimes even after all that, the decision isn't right. But in the end, the end of the day, it's owning it. And, and that's what I do. And maybe that's what's made us successful. I don't know. Accountability is really important to me. So at the end of the day, no matter how many lawyers or accountants or, or mentors have advised me, at the end of the day, the decision is mine. And whether it's right or wrong, it's mine. And so as far as confidence, there are times, of course, I will second guess myself like anybody else. Of course, you will. I think that that is always there. So obviously, you've gained some confidence over time just by doing stuff and also in your own development. And when you're just having a crap day, we're in business We're you know, the day isn't great. You know, it's like the, everything's hitting the fan. What's your self-talk around that? You know, you talked about accountability, responsibility. You obviously take responsibility and hold yourself accountable for whatever's going on. But what's your what's your self-talk around how do you get through those really tough times when it's just like everything that can go wrong is going wrong? What kind of conversations are you having with yourself? <laughs> I'm having so many that I look like a I look like a lunatic that or a psycho. But you know, a lot of those conversations usually come right back down to the root as to what it is that I have. What's what's what is going right in my life? Right. Um, so you anchor back to you anchor back to gratitude in terms of what are you grateful for and what is going right. Is that's that, right? That's the yeah, balance yeah. that you strike. Well, I think because one of the reasons when you know when you're thinking about how things are going bad or you're having a crappy day is because you're thinking of what the outcome is, and it's that whole thing that you're worrying about. Okay, if this doesn't happen, then this doesn't happen, then this doesn't happen. And say, well, wait a second, hold on. We don't know if this is going to happen or not. So why are we even going beyond that? And so it's centering around the gratitude piece, but it's also refocusing on, okay, look, if if this is not happening, it's not happening for a reason. Uh, so let's let's look at what we think is going to happen and focus on the positive attributes of that. You know that that whole positive mindset is absolutely critical especially when, when times are not, are not great and when you're having challenges in your business uh, or in life too. So it's so critical to, to stay focused on, on what's really positive versus you know, the crap that's going around you. Tell me a little bit about Invest Plus. You, what I want to go back to, because not all listeners on this call will understand real estate necessarily, and they certainly may not understand a trust. So if you were to explain kind of in layman terms if you could give our listeners a kind of a definition or an overview of what a REIT is, can uh, what would you say to that? A real estate trust is um, is just like a corporation, just like an LP or limited partnership. It's just a different structure. And what the REIT does for, say, an investor is that it gives the ability for us to offset our expenses in such a way so that when we're paying the investor an invest or a distribution or a dividend, we can offset that income with the losses that are within the company. So for instance, last year, there was some income we distributed to our clients, but because of the losses that were attributed you know, through you know, compensation to our staff, uh, costs in, in terms of uh, um, governance of our company, you know, costs are attributed to just running a business because we're able to flow that through to the investor. 
the investors didn't pay any taxes on that distribution. And so it allows investors to hold part of a company uh, that, that buys multifamily commercial buildings while at the same time earn distributions in a very tax efficient manner. So you obviously are working with real estate in, no, I shouldn't say that. You're working with individuals that are trying to create wealth and are they fairly sophisticated or are they just kind of day-to-day folks that are saying, well, this looks interesting. I have some money to invest. And a REIT is one of those things that I think will work or like, where is that? How does that fit in the world of creating wealth and creating success? Are these sophisticated guys or are these just laymen who are looking for a place to park cash and invest capital? It's, it's a combination of the two. Our business has moved in, uh, moved into uh, an area now where the, the majority of our investors come through an advisor or a wealth manager of some sort. And their clients range from you know your average Joe earning $100,000 a year to a multimillionaire who just sold their business. It's really the, the, the whole range. There are some stipulations in terms of who can invest with us. There are some regulations or some criteria that they have to meet. But, you know, on the, I don't want to call it the lower end because that's that sounds, that doesn't sound right. But but sort of the entry level investor who earns $75,000 or more is eligible to invest. And then anyone above that. So it doesn't have to be, you know, a multimillionaire. The typical client is the client who has no time uh, who has uh, who doesn't have the ability to buy a building on their own and just wants somebody to look after or just just want to be able to park some of their money in western canadian real estate in a company that has accountability has a track record and is looking to grow how did you go from being a real estate investor in in, in single family and then you grew into buying multifamily and is that where the idea of Invest Plus came from? Was that you were trying to buy more real estate and you said, well, I need investors to grow that portfolio? And is that how, was that kind of the journey, the entrepreneurial accident that you had perhaps was taking you down that path? Yeah, I mean, uh, from 2004 to 2008, we were buying buildings through joint ventures uh, where we would take, uh, you know, four or five investors together. We would, you know, put our money into a corporation and the corporation would buy the building. And then it wasn't really till 2008 where I've exhausted all our friends and family and saying, okay, well, I got to decide whether we're going to create a business out of this or just keep doing what we're doing. Um, and I, and I made a decision that this is, this is where I was going to go. So, so we started to raise money into what we consider the general public. I'm not talking about the stock market here, but just the general public and where, you know, there's regulations around that. You have to have an offering memorandum and so on and so forth. So without getting into details, there's a lot of regulation around that today. And back then it was just getting into, it was just becoming what it is today. And so we, we used the opportunity there to align ourselves with financial firms that allowed us to raise, to raise the capital. And so we started to do that for the next five years. And we grew the business to about $50 million. We had bought about 17, 18 buildings. And it wasn't until about 2014 where I really looked at our business and said, you know, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for us to reinvent the wheel every time we have a new project. And so we decided that it made a lot more sense for us to put everything and everything that we had bought under one 
entity. And so we could have all of the investors grow with us as we're growing, as opposed to having one company or one LP or one building and being the owner of only that building and not participating in any growth. You know, one, one big difference right now in our shift is we're looking at single tenanted commercial buildings. We think there's a huge opportunity there from a cash flow standpoint. This is a great opportunity for the existing investors who are going to participate in that growth as well. Whereas in the past, the way we were structured, they wouldn't have the ability to do that. So the idea of going into a REIT, while it wasn't part of the grand plan, it became the grand plan after trying different ways on raising money and growing the company. To me now, this makes the most sense. And, uh, and it made a lot of sense to our investors. So, so it's been a journey of uh, hard work. Fake it till you make it. Since you bought your first property in, uh, you know, back in the day, in uh, where was it, uh, Burnaby, I guess. And so here you are today in Calgary and running your REIT and running a business, running your team, and uh, looking after investors. That's been quite the journey for you. Lots of hard work, lots of stress, I'm sure. And you've uh, managed to uh, have five kids along the way, and uh, so you've been a pretty busy guy. And you show up to uh, be pretty significant in a lot of people's lives. I want to uh, well, thank you. I want to kind of go off on some tangents here and and get a little bit reflective as we kind of wind down and come to you know to some more personal stuff perhaps just thought processes because I've always found that with great leaders like yourself and guys that have or people not just guys you know ladies and men who have had some great success is they just have some interesting thought processes and. So what advice would you give your 20-year-old self in knowing what you know today? I mean, it's it's a fairly common question. I don't know if you've ever had the chance to give some thought to that. What would you tell your 20-year-old self today, knowing what you know? Mm, that's funny. You know, you, to, you know, from your perspective, you said, you know, we've grown a lot. And the one thing, it's this. Focus on yourself. Stop looking at the other side. Stop looking at the competition. To me, sometimes there are times where I'll just look at competition. And, and I, think, I think that would probably be the one thing in saying, look, make yourself and hold yourself accountable, but also you are the benchmark, not your competition. And, 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 and that's the one thing I struggled with for so many years. I think that would be one of the things, there's so many things I tell myself. <laughs> I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think of what, what, what other advice I'd, I'd give myself, but I'm sure as we're, we'll continue this conversation, I'll, I'll come back to one or two. Right. So, okay, we're going to go the reverse of that. And if you're looking at it today and you're looking forward, what advice do you want to give your 65-year-old self? Oh, my gosh, you're killing me. Stop and smell the roses. Hmm. Right. Take the time to really enjoy the time that you have with your with your kids, with your family, with your friends. Turn off the brain. You know, don't constantly be thinking about what you can do. And it's and it's easy to say, but it's it's hard to do. I mean, you know, when it's embedded in you, you start to look at everything that you do and everything that you come across going, hmm, I wonder how I can apply that to my business. And so what I tell my 65 year, year old self stop worrying, right? I mean, 90% of whatever it is that you're worrying is not going to happen. And, you know, a lot of times I worry, I I concern myself with just stupid stuff. And then that's probably what it would be at that and smell the roses. What are you not 
very good at. You're good at a lot of things, but what are you not very good at? What do you recognize is that you're just awful at it? I'm not good at being patient. Oh, you're not a you're not a patient guy. <laughs> Can you tell? <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm surprised by that. No, come on, man. Uh, you know what I like? My wife reminds me now that I I have no patience for anything anymore, and you know I can't stand in line anymore. I'll get upset at just the, the littlest things if it's if it's wasting my time. There's that's the funny thing is is that it's it's wasting my time, but at the same time I'm not using the time to focus on what's at hand and, and what's in the present. So go figure. These are the challenges that are going through my mind, right? So that's what I'm not good at. I'm not good at uh, reminding myself that you know this takes time. Um, I'm also not good at cooking, by the way. I've been reminded by my wife. I did this mean oxtail soup once. She constantly tells me that it was disgusting, but to me, it was amazing. <laughs> but, <laughs> that's great. So yeah, I mean, that's um, that's probably it. You play some hockey. You love to spend time with your kids. What other kind of hobbies do you have or what do you aspire to do in the future? Like, is there some future thing that you want to achieve that you want to do? Like, do you want to learn to play guitar, piano? Are you an artist? What is it for you that in the future that you would like to really do? You know, what I'd really love to do is there's a number of things. One is get myself a motorcycle, but I've been trying to convince my wife for years and she just, just does not want me to get a motorcycle. It's part of me. Patrick, I'm going to get myself a motorcycle. I know I will do that at some point uh, because it's just me. It's part of that mechanical engineering side of me that I just I just love. I just love to do that. As far as uh, music, you mentioned music. That's uh, another big part of my life. Uh, growing up, I uh, I played the accordion, believe it or not, for 11 years. <laughs> Sexy, and, holy cow! Yeah. Wow. Oh yeah. yeah. I can play a mean uh, a mean tarantella for you, man. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Or mean polka, and so yeah, and I and I did that for for several years. But I play the piano, you know. I'd, I'd love to play the the guitar at some point. I, my wife is giving me a guitar. I'd like for me to to have a band like I used to have. I used to have a band. We used to play for weddings, and not not in that sense, but just to putz around and and just and just to do that. Because to me, and what that, and what that, you played the accordion? No, I <laughs> played. Kidding. I play the I play the keyboards. <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> no, not the accordion. Hey, you know what? It's a comeback. There's some bands are bringing that that accordion back. <laughs> yeah, so. we'll wait for that to happen. That's great. <laughs> you know, in parts of Europe, it's still very sexy. But no, no, I know. You know, funny, real quick story on 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 the accordion. You know, when I was 11 years old, my dad he was a big big music fan, and he never got to play play any music, and so that was my sport. Like I played hockey, but I never played organized hockey. And so my sport was was music because that's what my dad, I guess that he thought that was the best path for me. But so he took me to his music school. And as we got there, you know, you'll see like there's guitars hanging, there's drum sets and all sort of stuff. And so he turns to me and he says, OK, Dominic, what do you want to learn? I said, well, I'm 11 years old. I want to play the drums. He says, the accordion it is. And so he signs <laughs> me up. And for the next 11 years, I played the accordion. But I really played for him for the most of that time. And it wasn't really till I was, you know, 16, 17 years old where we got a band, we started playing and I started playing keyboards as well, where I really, really appreciated music. So it's funny because, you know, for all of those parents who are trying to get their kids to practice, you know, you're not alone. 
But if you could keep pushing them, because my parents, that's what they did. They pushed me to practice and practice and practice. And it got me to the point where I really appreciate music today. And I don't think I would have ever appreciated it to the level that I do today if I hadn't continued. That's one thing that I'd like to, you know, I'd like to kind of rekindle a little bit is, is maybe playing in a band and, I don't know, playing some 80s music or something. Fun. So when you consider that we've got a number of people from different vocations, entrepreneurs, real estate investors, there's just a, a, a wide range of people that listen to the show. But ultimately, when you reflect on your life and where you're at today and what you've come to it, we know we have a lot of real estate investors and entrepreneurs that listen to the show. What advice would you give somebody if you wanted to share something with somebody that was into or considering investing in real estate or considering going down the path of entrepreneurship? What is something when you look at your own life and how it came together and how you showed up the way you show up today? Is there some kind of advice or guidance that you'd want to give somebody? Is there some philosophical kind of way of thinking that you would want to share with the listeners today? Like if you look at a lot of uh, business owners, there's not many of them that were scholars. There's not many of them that were super smart or anything. You know, if you look, the common denominator to a lot of successful people is they just took action, right? I mean, there's only so much you're going to learn about real estate. There's only so much you're going to learn it in through books or through going through rain or, or doing anything like that. So at the end of the day, you're going to have to take that step. And whether you have somebody else do it for you or you invest with a company like us or you go out and do it yourself, just do something. Like have no regrets in that regard. Just sometimes uh, I remind myself that, geez, I don't have a second shot at this. I only have this one shot. Uh, but sometimes we all do it. I do it. I, I live like, like as if I've got a second shot at it. And you don't. And, and you'll say, well, tomorrow or, or, you know, there's this reason why I can't. And, and you rationalize that. Look, at the end of the day, going back to that example with my parents, and I want to make one thing very clear, is that my dad went into business and, and after three years, he had to sell it. And, you know, you're, you're telling me all these great things about me and my business. And I, you really, and I appreciate it. I thank you for that. But to me, I just don't look at it that way. My dad did the, the, the exact same thing. We had a good conversation about, you know, where my business was and so on. So I says, you know what, Dominic? He says, you'd made it. And, you know, I didn't. But it's good, great to see that you did. And I told my dad, I said, now, nah, you know what? You did it as well because you took action. And, and at 46 to boot with very little education and Italian is your first language and you barely understood in, in English. So for all intents and purposes, really, you had the cojones to go ahead and do that you know, more than me. Uh, what you didn't have is you didn't have the support of, of mom, but, and my mom, you know, she, she did her best. Today, looking back, she says, you know, I should have supported him. So she completely understands that. But that's the difference that at the end of the day, so you fail. So what? Just, hope, you know, just make sure that it, does, it doesn't risk your entire livelihood. If it's $100,000 for you to buy that home, and worst case scenario, you lose everything, make sure you just don't lose. The, all you lose is your $100,000, right? Like, I mean, in everything that we do, I've made some mistakes where I've put my money in places where I probably shouldn't have and made money. But at the end of the day, I know that even if I did lose it, that it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be catastrophic. And so, and that's where people kind of put this in their minds that, boy, if I do this, you know, I, I may lose everything. And that's, and that's the wrong mindset. In the end, um, you know, when you're sitting back in your, in your rocking chair, look back and saying, you know, what should have I done back in the day? That's worse than doing something and, and failing at it. That's my advice is, is take action. 
So when you come off of that particular answer, how do you define success for you? Aside from the dollars and cents, maybe that's your measuring sticks. How do you measure your own success? Because I know that you also, like many of us, continue to always strive for more or setting the bar a little bit higher. But is there a way that you, do you have a definition for your success, Dominic? My, yeah, I guess my, I don't know if I have a definition, but to me, I'm always intrigued by people who are creative and, and just start something that's either go into a, a big venture or something that was completely different or something that you never would have thought of before and following through. And then if it didn't work out, hey, at least you tried. To me, that's success. If you can make money at whatever it is that you love to do and you're good at it, that's, I mean, that now nah, nah, that's uber success. But you can talk about, you know, I had this conversation with my second, my second son and he says, dad, I almost had a goal today. I said, son, you don't get paid on almost. Right. You got to, you got to get it. You oh, got to do hard it. Hard ass right? dad. Holy cow. Yeah, yeah I know. A little geez. bit of tough love. That's the way I am. Yeah. But, but you know what? At the end of the day, you know, I'm happy that they're trying, but, but there does come a day where you also have to recognize that if it's not working, you got to try something else. My, my definition of success is first take action because that's the biggest part of your success is actually taking that step. And far too many times you just hear stories where, you know, it's uh, this person has has some goals and ambitions, and 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 two years, three years later, you talk to them again, and they haven't taken one step ahead, or, or they, they they haven't done anything, and and that's where to me, you know, it's just like that fork in the road where I, you know, if I was gonna go back and not do real estate anymore, it's hard. That's that's failure to me. If you're not gonna take action, it's failure. So. Another way to define success is defining the failure. To me, if you're not going to take any action at some point, even after you have all the information available at your fingertips, that to me is failure. I remember years ago, um, I was probably around 45, I woke up one morning and my wife Stephanie and I were sitting up in bed and it was a Sunday morning. We were reading and having a conversation. And in a moment of reflection, I guess, and I said to myself, my gosh, I've made it. And you know, it's all nanosecond kind of things that are firing through your brain because I realized that all of the things that I had set out to be and to do in my life as a young man, I had actually achieved it financially, my business, my home, my wife. I like I'm, I'm literally have a moment of, holy cow, I have arrived. And then I went in that nanosecond, I went, wow, do I ever think small? And it was years ago that that happened to me in that nanosecond. Have you ever had that moment? Have you ever had a moment where you woke up and go, geez, I've made it. I've done really well. Uh, I, I think I have. When I bought the first multifamily, um, for me, because I've been so hard on myself for years, um, it's always been other people pointing it out to me and me not really appreciating the fact that I am where I am. But also, I've also been taught, right, uh, it's been brought up as to not, you know, don't make that ego, you know, or don't make that get to your head all the time, right? So, so it's always kept me centered. But the one thing for me that I know is that today, for sure, I know that I, I, haven't, I haven't made it. Because to me, making it is I've had to have a huge impact on, I don't know, on life, on someone or something or you know what? I, I don't know. I have this inner need to to help. 
I don't know what it is. It's embedded in me somewhere. I oftentimes think that, you know, while I'm doing what I'm doing, I know Don always says it's a means to an end, and it, and it is for me as well. But there's something greater out there for me. I don't know what it is. It's just this feeling that I have, and that, or I don't know. I don't know why I went there, but. Well, I think it's a it's an important part of. I think it's an important part of your character. I think it's you know we're there's a number of the leaders, the individuals that I know that are what I look at and and admire about the qualities is their desire to be a contribution to the success of others. Now, part of what drives you, I know, and is that you want your investors to be successful. You want your children to be successful. You contribute, I know, with RAIN members and the role that you play and the guidance that you sometimes give in those impromptu conversations that you have with somebody standing there. And we all, at some level, have some significance in our ability to be a contribution. And I see you that way. Is is that where you sometimes create from, or is that kind of what gets you out of bed in the morning? Is being that contribution to, in this case, I'm going to say your investors, but there's others that you're you're doing. Is that is that what I'm hearing? Uh, a big, big part. I don't know. And it was, and it's been part of me since I was a kid. Uh, always felt the need to help. And I, I'm not sure why. I think it's it's great. It's good, but. Even when I do, I still feel that it's not enough. You know, I've got a good friend of mine. Her name is Nikki. Nikki's got uh, CF, cystic fibrosis. And I was introduced to Nikki about uh, 10, 12 years ago. And um, she put on a gala to raise money for research for cystic fibrosis. And of course, when I met Nikki, I didn't know what, what CF was. Today, of course, I do know it's sort of the degeneration of, of your, your, your lungs. And, and it's basically, your immune system is, is so bad that you can catch just about anything. You're on this diet of pills, you know, 90 minutes in the morning, 90 minutes at night, and on, on, and on. Anyway, so I was introduced to Nikki, and when I met her and saw what she had done with all of these conditions and raising money to help others like her, you know, I couldn't help but think to myself going, what the heck is my excuse? And so she really inspired me to work with her. So I'm on the board for the Summit Foundation for CF. I have been for the last 10 years. And we're helping raising money for CF. And to the point where, you know, every year we do this. We, so far, we've raised about $2 million, which is, which is great. Uh, we've, we've got a, a microbial clinic uh, at the Foothills Hospital in, uh, in Calgary. And so a lot of great things, a lot of great strides and stuff like that. But for the first time, I noticed Nikki this year really struggling, struggling health-wise. Mm. And her, uh, you know, her ability to, to breathe, uh, her, her, her capacity right now is at 30%. It's like breathing through a, a straw, right, for her. And it just dawned on me going, geez, what, what else could I do there, right? And and although we've helped, and I've helped in so many ways, whether it be through contributions from, from, from investors, where it's been uh, sponsorships, ticket sales, whatever the case may be, you know, I can't help. And people always ask me saying, you know, what's your connection? Well, my connection is just Nikki. And, and because I have healthy children, I feel obliged that I have to help. And even though I am, I still feel that it's not enough. Mm. I don't know. It's this constant. I don't know why I feel that way, but... Uh, it's just the way I guess I am. That's great. An admirable quality, I think, in 
any leader in any successful person is that contribution that they want to be. There's one question that I often ask because there's always some interesting stories around it or can be some interesting stories. I don't want to say always. What's your biggest failure that turned out to be a blessing in disguise? Anything for you? Yeah, uh, probably my biggest, uh, you know, I always, I always come back to this one. It was when I, uh, when the university, I was in university for, for mechanical engineering and uh, my grades weren't high enough. And so they had put me on probation in my third year that if I didn't get my, get my GPA high enough, they would kick me out for one year. And, uh, sure enough, my grades weren't good enough and, uh, they, um, expelled you. I don't know what they call it again. I forget what the, the terminology that they use, but I was out of school for a year. That to me was like probably the most devastating thing that ever happened to me because as a child, my parents, you know, sacrificed everything so that, you know, I could go to school and made sure that I went to school. And I knew that my only option was to go to school and get a degree. And so when that happened, I see the disappointment in my, my dad's face. Uh, you know, my mom was, was very encouraging uh, from that standpoint. And I always knew that I was going to go back, right, to school and finish it off. But there was a heck of a lot of reflection. And it was probably one of my lowest points in my life where, um, you know, you really feel like, what am I going to do? But throughout that year, I worked. I worked at Costco of all places. So you know, my dad said, well, look, if you're not going to go to school, you might as well go to work. And so I went to work with uh, at, at Costco. It's funny how life works out. One of the guys I used to work with every morning, 4.30 in the morning, we'd work and we just, you know, pack stuff, right? And this guy is one of those guys that, you know, you ever come across a, a person who is so smart and you're going, what are you doing here? Right? Like, they're just intellectually smart. And this guy was more of a philosophical guy. And we got talking about how I got kicked out of school. And I told him that, you know, the big part of why my marks or my grades weren't there wasn't because I was partying or anything. In fact, I was doing the exact opposite. I was working really hard. He says, I would just put so much pressure on myself when I'd go in to, you know, write the exam that I would just blank out. I just, I wasn't good at writing tests. And so he says to me, let me get this straight. So if you fail, what's the worst thing that happens? I said, well, I guess I got to redo it again. And she goes, so... What's wrong with that? I said, well, I guess, I guess nothing. And it just was like one of those moments I go on. I can't believe I've been putting myself so much, so much pressure on myself. And that that was the one thing that was, was causing me to get my grades down or was causing me to fail. That when I went back, I changed everything completely. In fact, one of the things I, one of the habits that I did have is that I would admit that I wouldn't pay attention to class a whole lot. I would just read through the book. But then what would happen is I'd read through the book, and if I didn't understand it, well, the teacher's not there to answer any questions. And so what I did is I made sure that one thing that I noticed is that, and I tell my kids this, I tell university kids this, is that you will not be tested on anything that the teacher does not talk about in, the, in class. So if you can take as much notes, and if there's anything in, in class that the teacher teaches and that you don't understand, you make sure you get that, an, that question answered. And if you got to ask it three times, ask it three times. But make sure you understand it and take as many notes as you can. And that's exactly what I did. And what happened is from that moment when I went back to when I finished school, my GPA was greater than the first three years combined. And it was just a, a different mindset. 
just better organized, you know, asking questions until you're until you're satisfied with the question and you're answered and, and don't put that much pressure on you. And and the biggest thing for me, too, was also reminding myself, going, you know, if Jim can do it, if Sally can do it, why can't I? And that's why I go back to this whole action thing. Right. It's like, look, it's not like I have a special gift. It's not that, you know, I'm I'm I'm, I'm blessed with more talents than, than, than the next guy. It's just that I took action. And 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 I recognize that, you know, even the big business leaders that are out there, you, too, can be that person. You know, it's just you've got it. You know, you got to You got to take action. And you got to do all of the things in place, right? So, so are you willing there. to fail? Is there is there a place when you talk about taking action? Are you are you do you have a willingness to fail? Would you say that that is one of the things that we all, I guess, have a fear of failing, but we take action? You take action. Is there a place where you are willing to fail? Yeah, absolutely. If it's for the right thing, I'm willing to fail at it. Absolutely. Um, you know, but 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 then at the same time, while while I am willing to fail, the cost cannot be. You know, so you mitigate risk. It, you right? mitigate your risk. I mitigate risk. You I mitigate the risk. You don't. Yeah. You don't swing for the fence every time. That's not your game. No, no. I'm not going to get into a business that I don't know anything about, and and just you know, worst case, putting my my investors' money in. I'm not going to do that unless unless I've, I've dipped my toe into it. Unless I, I I know that if worst case scenario, I can at least get my money back or whatever the case may be. Right. Cool. Okay. So as we wind down, Mr. Mandato. Tell me something. What's your most embarrassing moment? Oh my gosh! I'll, I'll tell you. Okay, here's here's one. Okay, so when I was a kid, loved candy, of course, like most kids. But uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of money in the house to begin with. But what I would do is I would take a quarter from my mom's purse every once in a while, and I'd go buy candy. And so one time, I went to this convenience store near the place we used to live, and I come out with this massive sucker in my mouth, right? Like I could barely get my mouth around this thing. Right? It was so big, right? And who dries up? It's my parents. Ah. And they see me with this candy. They know that I don't, you know, like I don't have any money. Like where did I get the money to get that, right? Yeah. And so I had to fess up. I said, I got it from mom, right? And, uh, you know, it wasn't a, a pretty set, I'll tell you. Not only I was embarrassed, I was ashamed too. But, but in the end, I did make it better because when I got my first job, the first check went to my mom. Awesome. And these are all for all the quarters. Well done, Dominic. Well done. Okay, so when you um, get to heaven in the pearly gates, what do you want God to say about you? I guess I'd want him to say that you've used all, all the talents that I've given you. You weren't greedy. You made a difference in people's lives. As cliche as that sounds, you've helped when, when people were in need, you know, no matter what, there's always a way as much as we're talking about business, the finances, all that stuff, there's a personal side to everything. And so long as I feel that I'm not getting taken advantage of, as long as I, you know, feel that I'm doing the right thing that God looks at me and says, you know what, um, you've done everything and, and you've lived life to the max on every level. Right. So, so I took an advantage of all of the gifts that he's given me. What are you most grateful for? My family, without a doubt, my kids, my wife, my parents, my in-laws, uh, my brother-in-law, brother, sister, your know, family is, is probably is, is number one. It's always been that I'm grateful for 
you know, for the upbringing. I'm grateful for the the patience that my wife has for me. <laughs> and I'm grateful for my kids that they're they're also patient with me and that, you know, they're they they always, always seem to amaze me. And you know, sometimes the the way they think, uh how they joke around, uh the they just bring so much life into into the house. I'm so grateful for that. Uh, they remind me of what's important. Dominic, I want to say thank you for, you know, participating and being on the show and and sharing some of the insights that you have. My observation around you in what you've been successful in is that it's really also part of who you are and how you created the wealth that you've created is through humility, through being supportive of others and being a contribution. I admire the success that you've had from that perspective in that who you're being is pretty remarkable in general. I'm uh, really, really honored to have you on the show. And there's lots of great lessons and insights that I've taken away out of this conversation. I believe that the listeners that as they listen to this, will pick up lots of great nuggets of insights and information. So I want to say thank you. Thank you uh, for having me on the show, uh, Patrick. Uh, I really admire what you've done with Rain, and I'm um, I'm forever grateful for still being a, a part of this group and uh, and being a friend. Thanks, Paul. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends as it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener. If you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.